Um, just another a word, a couple of housekeeping things. Jenny Lynn mentioned, you know, we won't have Christmas Eve. And I know for maybe a lot of us, it's a bummer. Uh, but uh, we do want to celebrate and continue to hold the importance of the Lord's Day. And so I think that's why we kind of wanted to keep it just to one service, but also the burden that it carries for our um, our music team and other volunteers. And so just like Lessons and Carols will be 59 minutes. I know many of you have family obligations, but encourage you to come out and worship with us on the Lord's Day as we have our Lessons and Carols. And we'll also be at the Lord's Table as we always do on Sunday morning. And also we have our officer nominations in December. And so if um, so far, if I'm just transparent with you, we don't have any nominations mid-month. Mid, uh, mid and so do consider that. We, we've been sending out email reminders to you all. Read through 1 Timothy 3, Titus, and see, is there anyone that the Lord might be laying on your heart that has the heart of an elder or a heart of a deacon or deaconess? We'd love for you to prayerfully consider who you might, who you might nominate over this December month for nominations. So with that, let me read for us Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with, with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as a dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spread the, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their st stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One, Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks for this opportunity that we have to open up your word and hear from you of how great and marvelous and majestic you are. So help us to see with our eyes as only you can show us this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as a kid growing up, every single year, our family would take a road trip over the summer all over the U.S. Uh, and, and the reason we did this was because my dad was a pastor. And so we would line up all of our vacation and road trips with all of his speaking engagements. So I've been to all 49 states except for Hawaii in all of my travel with my family. From Alaska down to California, from New York and Maine all the way to L.A. This land was made for you and for me, right? I mean... I have seen some amazing, amazing things and of nature in the U.S. Now, one of the things growing up that my mom would do when she would see something marvelous, like whether it's the mountains, the Grand Canyon, um, the Arcadia Bluffs, whatever it was, we would go out there and my mom would do this thing where she would shout really loud. And it wasn't like a scream, but it was more like a yodel. It would be sort of like... Yeah. <laughs> it would be this yo like really loud and for me and my sisters we would be so embarrassed it would, it would embarrass i mean there would be all these people and let alone not only that she would scream but we were like you know we we're asian so it just made it even worse and while we were embarrassed as i look back on that she screamed because as she looked out in the landscape of god's creation she could only scream and shout her yodel, this sense of awe and majesty and wonder of God's creation. Now, to be really honest, I actually have done it sometimes with my kids to continue to pass on what my parents did for, or at least what my mom did for me. And we know that it is very biblical, right? Because the psalmist say, shout praises to God for his wondrous works. Now, why do I share this? Because here's the thing. Even the greatest views that you might have seen in your lifetime, the majestic mountains, the great oceans and seas, the deserts, the canyons, it doesn't do justice to who God is with our own eyes. When we look through our own eyes, even the greatest wonders are limiting. Why I say this is because we have to see the majesty and wonder of God through God's own revelation, through his own eyes. And the Bible has always taught us to see him through his own eyes because when we look through our own eyes, we diminish him, we limit him, and even at times we err in what we believe about God. And here in, this, in these verses, verses 12 through 26, God shows us who he is in his wonder, in his greatness. And I think this does something for us who are struggling, who are brokenhearted. Because throughout this passage of Isaiah 40 that we've been looking through the, through this Advent series, we, say, we saw that it was a for a people that were brokenhearted. They left and were abandoned and were exiled to Babylon. Their homes were ruined. Their livelihood was gone, and they were exiled to this foreign country in Babylon. And in the midst of their brokenness, God breaks through in Isaiah 40 to offer them hope and comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. The second week, we saw how though the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word stands forever. It is permanent, and that gives them hope. 
Last week we looked at how God is that tender shepherd who holds us in his bosom. But think and imagine for the people of God who are absolutely brokenhearted, the question that must be going through their mind is, well, how do we know that God's going to keep his promise? We're in exile. We're in a completely abandoned land and God has forsaken us or what seems like God has forsaken us. And what God does for Israel and for us who are brokenhearted in the midst of sorrow and grief and devastation, he says, I will keep my promise because you will see how great I am through my own eyes, through my own words. I will keep my promise because I am great. I am second to none. And when you see how big I am, you will not doubt my promises. I have prepared a way for you and my glory will come and I will remake all things that are broken because of who I am. And that's what I want to do briefly here. I just heard that some pastors get 50-point sermons. Well, today I'm giving you a five-point sermon. So it will be short, short points of who God is through this passage. But we want to be able to see through God's own words, through his prophecy, who he is, not through our own eyes but through God's own voice and who he is. And he uses amazing imagery to show us who he is. Five things that we want to briefly look at here. And the first is this. God is the wise creator. God is the wise creator. What you see in these first three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14, in verses 12, you see how God seems to use these words of tools, right? He uses things like measuring. He uses words like um, building. Now look at, look at how we see, and he uses it in, the, in, in question form, not in statement. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the heavens in scales and the hills in a balance. And what we're seeing here is that it's alluding to God who is the creator. He's the creator. And imagine the imagery he's using here. He's saying, take all of the water in the universe, even in our own world, on earth. He holds it in the hollow of his hand. And when you take the expanse of the skies, it's between the span. When you stretch out your hand between your thumb and your pinky, he holds it in one hand. This is the creator of the universe who is so great that he could hold the entire universe in his one hand. To us, it's massive, too big to even comprehend, but to God, it's all manageable. It's all manageable in just one hand. But he doesn't just use this idea of tools and buildings to show us that he's a creator, but he shows us that he is wise in verse 13 and 14. What does he say? He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You see these words of counsel, consult, understanding, knowledge, justice. We not only have the God who is the creator, but he is the wise one. How do we, where does our wisdom derive from? It's from books and journals and people who teach us. But for God, his wisdom comes from, derives from nothing. It's from himself. He has all knowledge, all wisdom. 
all counsel. It's derived from himself, from nothing else. And this is the God that we worship. The God who promises us comfort, who promises to hold us in his bosom in the midst of brokenheartedness. But it's more than just the wise creator we see here. The second thing we see about God is that he is the great God. Verses 15 through 17. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as a dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. You notice the word nations he keeps using here. Why is God great? Because the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Imagine if you held a bucket of water and you're walking with it and one tiny, one single drop leaves a bucket out into dry land. Would you even notice it? Would you go and refill your bucket with water? No. It's absurd. But here God accounts for every single nation that is like a drop of water in a bucket. To us, it's nothing. But to God, he is so great, he even notices the drop of one nation, the collective of nations, of peoples. And it doesn't mean that he hates the nations when he talks about how they are nothing before him. No, we see throughout Genesis and throughout history and through the word of God that we are made in his image. We are the crown jewel of his creation. But compared to who God is, the nations are like nothing. They're like a drop of water in which he accounts for every single drop that is missing. This is how great our God is. He weighs even one single dust, speck, because every single speck is of the nations. This is the massive great God that we worship. We're like a little drop, we're like a dust that he weighs and accounts for. This is the massive, amazing God, a majestic God that we worship. But not only a great God, we see verses 18 through 20, he is the only God. What question is asked? To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compares with him? Again, here this rhetorical question demands no one. No one can be likened to God because he is the only God. But what do we do? We try to control God. We try to shape and make gods in our own image. And that's why he says an idol? Well, what are idols? They're human imaginations. They're derived from our own thoughts. They're crafted by our God's own creation from gold. It's all done by craftsmen. There's all this irony and sarcasm that God is trying to portray here. Nothing can compare to God. And when we try to fashion God in our own way, in our own imagination, using the things that God has created, that do not move, he even says at the end of verse 20. And that's what we do. They're impoverished. They don't compare to who God is because God is the only God. But he's not only the only God that we see here. 
He's also the act of God. Look at verses 21 through 24. He asks these questions again. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? And the answer is yes, we, we do know. The Israelites knew of the story of God, and we know the story and the gospel. Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? And what does God say? He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God is active. We are not deists, where God comes and creates and just leaves us to our own. But rather, he is active and at work in our lives. He is active and at work in the world today. He raises up leaders, and he crushes rulers. He is a God who is absolutely providential in our lives. And when I say providence, what I mean by providential is that in his holiness— In his wisdom, in his love and power, he preserves and governs all his creatures and all of their actions. He's at work in our lives. He's the one that is watching us as well in verses 25 and 26. Look at this. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. What we see here is that God is always watching over his creation. It's an invitation to actually look up to the sky. He's inviting us to look up into the sky at night. And what do we see? We see the stars. Now, you know, In big cities like this, wherever you go, it's harder to see with clarity all the stars in the sky. But when I was in Kenya, it was absolutely amazing to see every single star shining. And what is God saying? He's saying, look at the stars in the sky. I know every single star by name, and I call them out at night. In the hundreds of billions of stars that are in this universe, God knows each one by name, and not one goes missing. Every single star is accounted for. He is watchful, and he watches over every single one of us. It reminds me of what Jesus said. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. Are they not cared for? Are they not clothed? How much more than Will I care for you? Do not worry. God is a God who is watchful over his creation. I know I ran through these quickly, but this is the God that we worship. This is how great he is. He is the wise creator. He is the great one. He is the only one. He is the one who is active, and he is the one who is watchful. And this is the one that we are called to behold. Behold our God and look at him because he is worthy and he will keep his promises. It reminds me of Psalm 86. This is what Psalm 86 verses 8 through 10 says. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any 
works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Now, as I reflected on just how great our God is, especially as he talked about the universe and the stars, it made me think of this pastor who spoke about God in comparison to the universe. And this is what he said. Now listen to, it's a little long, but listen to the description of our universe and think about how great our God is in comparison. Here we are on this tiny planet we call Earth. The closest star to us is, of course, the sun. The sun generates energy with the same explosiveness as a hydrogen bomb with its own continuous internal nuclear fission. The surface of the sun is relatively a cool 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, while the center, center of the sun is a toasty 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The diameter of the sun is 870,000 miles, 109 times larger than the earth, and its volume can contain 1 million earths. Its luminosity is equal to 4 million trillion 100 watt light bulbs, which is more than what you can find even at a Home Depot. And the sun is just an average star. Now the sun is the center of our solar system. Our solar system. Our solar system is inside a galaxy called the Milky Way. And this Milky Way, this galaxy we live in, is shaped like a spiral, like a gigantic pinwheel spinning in the open expanse of space with our solar system rotating around the center once every million years. We lie about two-thirds of the way out from the center of our galaxy, so we could be considered the boondocks. The Milky Way is 104,000 light years across, containing over 100 billion stars. To count them one by one would take us 3,000 years. And according to the latest probings of the Hubble Space Telescope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies here in God's universe. And that universe is dwarfed by God. The God who holds the universe in one hand between his thumb and his pinky finger. God who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. The one who is wise, full of knowledge, and knows a path of justice, and consoles no one but himself. The one who is great, where he counts and measures even the dust on a scale. The God who looks at Lebanon's worship, and it cannot even compare if you were to cut down every tree of that nation, that worship would not be enough for God. This God who counts the hundreds of billions of stars and knows them by name and calls each one by night. This God is the one who promises us comfort, comfort. The God who holds us in his bosom in the midst of our brokenness, the midst of our hardship. Even when we fashion idols from wood that will not rot, but wood that will and that will burn, he still holds us in his bosom. He says, you are mine. 
That is why we can promise and behold this God who comes to us, Emmanuel. That's why we come during this Advent season waiting for Jesus to come, who comes in a manger, in swaddling cloths, who grows up to suffer and die for us. That we might experience the love and compassion of our God. So we might know the grandeur who is second to none and his majesty and worship him, though it doesn't even compare to what he is worth. He accepts it. He says, you are my children. Hold on. Endure in the midst of your brokenness because my promises are true. Believe. Behold our God. Behold your God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that even in your majesty, even in your greatness and bigness, you make a way for us to even understand in our limitness, in our finiteness, Lord. You convey to us in your loving way of how great you are. And so, Lord, I pray that during this season where there is, there is sorrow and there is brokenness, and even in the joys that we can experience now, Lord, help us to see who you are. Help us to be grateful. Help us to be humble. Help us to be able to have hope in a God who is this great, who is mindful of us and watches over us. May you do that now, even as we come to the table, a beautiful sign of how you do come near us and watch over us and are active in our lives. So may we see that as we eat and drink together and believe in our hearts. For you have come, Emmanuel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.